everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. David Greenwald created the Everyday Injustices podcast to educate and raise awareness about the shortfallings of our criminal legal system. We invite guests to come and discuss the injustices that they experienced within our flawed system. Flint Taylor discussed with us the horrific Chicago torture scandal in which police tortured countless victims for confessions. Definition of the, of the UN uh, that, about torture in terms of coercion of, uh, of people to give confessions. Uh, but when we use the, the term and we used it in the torture machine, uh, which is the title of my book, uh, and the torture machine, as you uh, probably gleaned uh, from the reading it, is it has two meanings. One is the torture machine, which was uh, is uh, depicted on the cover of the book, which is a box with a generator, an electric generator in it, um, hand crank generator with wires attached to that generator uh, and clips on the wires uh, by which you could turn the crank and send electric current through those wires into a human being through the clips. And the torture uh, that was done by John Burge, who came back from Vietnam, was on a POW camp as a military police officer, or sergeant actually, uh, in Vietnam, where they were torturing people with electric shock. So he brought this technique back to Chicago, to the South Side, uh, to the predominantly African-American community where he was a detective. And he started to, to get confessions pretty regularly for, in very serious cases. And it turns out uh, that he was using this box to electric shock people, particularly people like Andrew Wilson and his brother Jackie, uh, who were uh, captured for, for killing two white police officers in 1982. Uh, but they were using other torture techniques that you wouldn't connect with police in this country necessarily. In uh, those included dry, dry submarino, which uh, was putting bags over the heads of, of people they were questioning, cutting off their air supply, uh, making them think that they were going to suffocate. It's called dry submarino because in other countries, sometimes they would dunk a person's head in water and hold their head in water. And that was submarino. But this was dry submarino. And they, they, the detectives that worked with Burge uh, used this tactic. And they used mock executions as well. Putting a gun in someone's mouth, putting it to their head and pulling the trigger, 
uh, making them think there was a shell in the, in, the, in the gun or in the shotgun that they put to their head. Uh, and those were some of the techniques along with uh, beatings, uh, with, with uh, rubber hoses, uh, with, with uh, baseball bats and, and nightsticks, all with the, uh, um, ven not veneer, but with the connected with uh, racial epithets, uh, attack on the genitals, uh, just the kinds of things that definitely fit torture as it's thought about internationally. Uh, and that's the kind of torture that happened as a systematic program under John Burge for 20 years in the city of Chicago. Uh, and um, at that point, the, it was thought that Andrew Wilson's civil case was perhaps uh, one-off. You know, uh, this was the, the cops being outraged because two of their fellow uh, officers had been, been killed. Uh, and so therefore they tortured the two men that they uh, had eyewitnesses to say were involved. But it turns out, thanks to an anonymous police source, uh, the deep badge, as we call them, uh, kind of in honor of uh, deep throat in the Watergate case, um, contacted me and my partners during uh, the civil trial of Andrew Wilson in 1989 and said, look, this is a systematic issue. This isn't just a, a one-off case and gave us leads uh, to take us not only to other victims of police torture, but also to show that it went up the ladder. Burge at this point had gone from a detective to a commander of police. The um, pro head prosecutor, uh, Richard Daly, Richard M. Daly, the son of Richard J. Daly, had gone on to be the mayor of the city of Chicago. Uh, so over the next 20, 30 years, we were able to uncover evidence uh, along with the movement and other lawyers that showed that there was at least 125 African-American uh, victims of Burge and his men uh, at the uh, police areas where they worked. Uh, and they, the tactics used were the same tactics that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and because of this evidence coming out, uh, many men were ultimately exonerated, taken off of death row, brought civil suits, but some of them still remain uh, in the penitentiary. Uh, reparations were obtained in 2015 from the city of Chicago that included not only uh, monetary uh, compensation for, for, for the torture survivors who hadn't collected any money, uh, but also such things as teaching the torture scandal in the Chicago public schools, uh, a full-throated apology from the mayor, uh, a center on the south side of Chicago that uh, was uh, focused on treating uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and other uh, psychological uh, and emotional issues that the men and their families had, uh, and a memorial uh, in honor of the, of the uh, torture survivors. So that's really the, the, the enormity of the crime, and the enormity of the crime is the cover-up as well, of course, the second half of the meaning of the torture machine is the Chicago political machine, the Democratic machine, the mayor, uh, Daly, uh, the prosecutor who was Daly before him, uh, the police superintendents, uh, all of whom know about this, who covered it up, who didn't prosecute the real criminals, that being Burge and his 
uh, crew of what they called internally ass kickers, Burge's ass kickers, uh, just a thoroughly racist operation, a white supremacist uh, operation uh, that went on not only from 1980s when, when, when the Wilson case happened, but it, went, it started in 1972, uh, back uh, when Burge first became a detective. Uh, and so it went from 1972 to 1991 uh, when Burge was ultimately uh, suspended and fired based on the evidence that we and others had uncovered. Uh, and of course, the scandal and the cover-up continues to this very day. While Chicago addresses this horrific abuse of authority, countless others suffer from this system and the injustices are far from over. They still occur to this day. Last year, Nakia Porter shared her story about police violence with us on the podcast. At the time, my youngest, my son, was almost two. He wasn't in the car, but my other, my niece, who was three, my middle daughter, four, and my oldest daughter, six. Right? So now you have these youth, and I'm trying to switch drivers with my dad. As you know, I'm sure with you riding with your wife, you've had times where it's like, hey, honey, tired, let's switch, let's do this, because that's the best thing for all of us, right? And so that's exactly what we're doing. So to get to your question about them approaching us and asking us these questions, it's very confusing, because I'm not doing anything out of the ordinary, right? I'm tired, we're getting off the road, getting safely off the road to switch drivers, and I'm now being approached with questions about, I mean, not questions, but demands to get back in the car. And I'm following all of those things. I'm complying with every request that's being made. And then they start to escalate. So you ask me, how do I feel? Very confused. And I'm trying to ask questions to clarify, right? Communication is very important. I value that very much so. And the communication was, was not clear, which left me in a very confused and scared state because now I'm trying to simply switch drivers and there's a certain level of escalation happening. So what do I do, right? I, you know, I wanna, I wanna sort of add in there, as you watch the video, you will see that, that Nikki and her father they go, um, you know, do their three-point turn, and they've stopped already. Yep. You can actually notice, you can see the details. If you watch it, you can see when a car goes from drive to park, right? Yep. You can see the reverse lights come on for a split second, and they go off. You can see that happen. You can see her switching gears to park. You can see the doors opening. And an officer at that point, just comes up sort of to the side of the car with the lights. In a normal, you know, and they're, they're saying it's a traffic stop. There's no traffic stop. These right. folks were already stopped. You just came there. They have no idea why they're being stopped, right? They're, they're, or or why, why you're there. Like they weren't even stopped. They right. don't even have any idea why you're there. They're starting to, to pepper her with questions. And she is very calmly, very clearly explaining to them what's happening and following their commands. It's, it's very clear. So this is, you'll see this in, in you, if you go through the video step-by-step, step, you're gonna see how this unfolds. And this, this male deputy 
decided that, you know what, he, he was gonna put hands on her and violate her civil rights. And his partner who was there decided she was gonna help him. You know, you can see it unfold in front of your eyes. And as I watch it, it makes me cringe as I know what's coming. When I hear a police siren coming back, I'm immediately hit with so much anxiety. So many, so much anxiety. A lot of black people already have that in general. And we're not even doing anything wrong. And now I have that excessively. Because here I am doing everything right. Speaking, looking for clarification. And none of that is acknowledged. As if, like you said, to be seen and not heard. I'm there, but my voice doesn't matter. I'm here, but they're gonna do whatever it is that they wanna do, which was to take me out of view of the camera so they could do what? The worst fear. These things were just happening. George Floyd just happened. Like you said, the other person, it just happened. And you talk about the cuffs. I have no clue whether they accidentally or didn't tighten it correctly right? Or they did it intentionally? That I don't know. What I do know is they took me out of the view of the camera and beat me up. They punched me in my head multiple times. So much so when all of this started to come back in view, I started feeling as if I just got punched in my head that same day. And I talk through, I go through therapy. So people that you need support, you need healing. There's a book called The Body Keeps Count. Where as early as children going through, which my children went through this, we have no idea of how much it has impacted them. It may not come out until years later because some of them were so young and they don't have words to describe. Mommy was taken away. Mommy did not show up last night. Mommy's home. My children still come and sleep in the bed with me. And I wasn't there. Where was I? In jail. Like a criminal. For switching drivers, for doing the right thing with my father. With my children. My father, my husband, who wasn't there because he was traveling with family to visit family. We are family. They broke up and they're tearing apart family. That, that in the society of a society that wants to build, that wants to be harm, harmonic, wants to be in harmony, wants to be peaceful, wants to talk about love, wants to talk about compassion. This did not model compassion. The officers, those in uniform did not model compassion. It was very neglect. It was, they were negligent in their actions, not mindful of the impacts of what it is that they were doing. And who has to put the pieces together? I'm trying to put the pieces together for myself, which for black people in our culture is okay. We're dealing with so many stresses, negative images in the media, right? On an ongoing basis, on the job, in corporate spaces. 
where a lot of us can't even wear our hair naturally because it's offensive or it's threatening. Having to deal with that and then still having to go to work. I was afraid I was gonna lose my job. Now I was gonna lose my job because I went to jail. That went to jail. For what? How do I explain to people? We didn't have no video. No video that you were able to see, David. Thank you for sharing your opinion of what you can see because that's what I've been living with. And then for me to see it brought back so much more that, oh my gosh, they knocked me out. When they first started hitting me, I was like, they're going to kill me. <laughs> My hands are tied behind my back. I can't do anything. So how do I still end up being the criminal? In, in, in many circumstances, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad the DA did the right thing here, but that doesn't always happen. That doesn't always happen. A lot of times you'll see DAs turn around and, and, and file charges where they shouldn't be filed just to protect the officers. That's why. And and so that is another abuse that needs to to be addressed that you know thank goodness it didn't happen here but it that happens additionally the inherent bias of this unjust system targets our most vulnerable populations even evidence that we would think of as quantitative or factual can also include biases professor brandon garrett shared with us the unreliable nature of forensic evidence such as dna and fingerprint testing if we're missing some part of the fingerprint and all it's smudged, like there's just parts that are missing. Uh, it's not like a license plate where we know how many letters or digits or whatever are missing. And we can say something about, okay, well, how many, just how many licenses in North Carolina began with a J? Like, what are the odds you have a J license plate? Maybe that's only a few hundred thousand people. Maybe in the city of Durham, it's only 5,000 people. So that tells us something. You're one out of the 5,000. That's pretty good. Well, with fingerprints, are you one out of 5,000? if you have these like set of characteristics, if it's in general shaped like a whirl as opposed to a loop, we don't know, we have no statistics, there are no statistics. And if you don't have statistics, you can't say anything about how common or rare it is to share some characteristics. Uh, we can do that for other things, like for, for firearms, if it's like a certain caliber bullet, we can say something about how popular is that caliber, like how many people have like whatever it is, like. Uh, a, a shotgun of a certain gauge, or if it's a shoe print, how many people have like a size 10 sneaker? I don't know. Like, I think we do know something in general about like average sizes of feet. And if certainly if someone has like a size 15 sneaker, wow, that's like, that's a really big foot. That tells you something. Uh, but how many people who have like a common shoe size, like a 10 and a half, like me, um, bought a particular brand, maybe we can do that. But how many people who own a shoe like that have particular wear marks on the bottom of their shoe? How many people, um, you know, own their shoes for a few months and so they're pretty worn down? We have no idea. How many, you know, bullets of a particular caliber would be expected to have these types of scratch marks? Um, in the past, firearms examiners would just say, well, it's unique. And so like, if, if it's, this is a unique 22 caliber uh, bullet because it left these scratch marks. Well, could another one have left that? Well, maybe. Uh, how many others could have left it? We don't know. 
And, and that's true of all these pattern matching disciplines. And unfortunately, a lot of what crime labs do is this kind of pattern matching stuff where they're literally just eyeballing the patterns and reaching these conclusions about it without any uncertainty or anything like that. To just give another example, I'm sure you all know from your personal lives that even something that's really objective involves some degree of judgment when a person does it. And we need to know how good is the person. So one example is measuring tape. And I know that I'm one of the people in my family that is less good at measuring a piece of furniture to figure out like, could another chair fit there? Or could another couch fit there? Like measuring tape, like it's a ruler, okay? It's objective. Like we've all agreed as a society, uh, you know, uh, like how big is a foot? How big is 10 feet? But when it involves like holding the measuring tape on one side of something and then pulling it to the other side, and what if the first thing moves? Some people are more careful about that and take into account the distance to the wall or whatever, or they tape it down on one side so it doesn't move when you pull it to the other side. Like there, there's human measurement error, even if you're using a ruler. But what's the human measurement error if you're not measuring anything objective, if you're not measuring anything particularly clear? If you're just like looking at stuff and saying, I think that's enough, maybe it's a match. That's, if we don't even know what's being measured, if we don't even know what counts as an error or what counts as good judgment, then we're outside of science. We're outside of measurement, we're outside of science, we're just making judgment calls. And even that is okay, because we rely on experts and we're not totally sure with everything they're doing. They're doing some things based on their experience, their judgment. Fine, we can rely on people's judgment and experience if we test them with realistic and challenging tests and we find out how good they are at their, at their job. And so if, if the fingerprint examiner says, look, I'm doing my own internal thing, they could consult a Ouija board for all we care if they get it right every time. And how do we know if they get it right every time? Well, we don't test them. So that's, that's the final problem. And, uh, and I've thrown a lot of problems out there, but they're, they're all really important. We need to know if the method's any good even if it involves some subjectivity, um, well, we still need to know whether the person using it is any good. Because if it's not just a ruler, if there's the human involved, then how good is this particular human? Uh, we also need to know how good is their lab. They could have bad practices, which encourage people to perform badly. But even if this is like good procedure, good lab, well, how good is this human examiner? Have, are they even tested? And we, we often don't even know that. There, there, there's, no, there, there's really hardly any labs in the country that are doing serious demanding blind tests to find out how good the people are. And so if, if, if you're a juror in a criminal case and you're hearing you know, a forensic examiner talk about the, these types of evidence, you should ask have a lot of questions running through your head and you should be hoping that the lawyers bring out the answers uh, because, because it's not enough to just be told, oh, I made a call, it's a match wonderful for the justice system when, when evidence is easy, but in the real world, sometimes it's hard. And then with DNA, you have to interpret the results. And you have these same questions about who's the interpreter? Do they work for law enforcement? What were they told? Were they told the information that they needed to do their analysis or were they told all sorts of extra biasing stuff? And in the DNA world as well, there are, especially with these bias issues and interpretation issues, they're, they're not clear ground rules. However, hope is not lost. We can fix this systematic injustice. We see more and more individuals striving for change, including elected officials such as Eli Savitt. DA Eli Savitt introduced new programs and measures to help curb injustices within his community. A, a treat kids like kids policy. Uh, we're no longer charging 
young people for minor school-based behavior, you know, a fight in the hallway, uh, you know, an eighth grader stealing a calculator from another eighth grader's backpack, uh, vaping, uh, you know, uh, smoking, typical adolescent experimentation. Uh, it's not to say that we don't think there should be consequences for that, but look, uh, we all know that people that look like me as a white guy, uh, the consequences that are imposed are often at home or at school, uh, and the school-to-prison pipeline uh, treats a lot of kids differently and you know doing what kids do making the mistakes that kids make shouldn't tether you to the criminal legal system uh we've got policies around uh, immigration uh we've got an immigration conscious uh charging policy prioritized our um uh, our, our certification of T visas and U visas for uh, non-citizen victims who have been uh, human trafficked or have uh, uh, assisted law enforcement in solving particularly serious crimes, uh, and that's been going quite well. Uh, you, you know, we, we, we put in place a new policy in which we are not charging low-level contraband crimes uh, stemming from pretext stops. Uh, so, you know, this is when a, cop, uh, a police officer will pull you over in your car uh, and, you know, a minor traffic violation, but use that with no additional legal justification as a opportunity to uh, search your car. And what we're, we're saying is, look, uh, we all know that this is tied to racial profiling. Uh, I've never been asked for consent to search my car for being pulled over for traffic violations. Uh, and, you know, every motorist should, should know, look, if you're going to get a ticket, let's get the ticket and let's move on to that. Uh, but we don't want to be part of a system in which, you know, motorists are stopped and it's used as a fishing expedition looking for something more without any real suspicion of uh, a crime. So that's some of the uh, uh, stuff on, from a policy perspective we've been doing. Also, it bought us some time. Uh, and then I think that as we move forward and the world didn't fall apart, uh, that tamped down anxiety uh, as well. You know, the truth of the matter is that uh, whenever you have change, your partners are going to be anxious. And I ran a very robust campaign around the need to reform our criminal legal system. And often people just hear sort of the headlines and, you know, uh, as a result of that may have some fear about how it's going to play out in practice. So I think putting in place those working groups, getting that input from uh, stakeholders bought us a few months because, you know, people could see, okay, my colleague was on that working group and they're not crazy. And, and I know that if they signed their name, uh, you know, and, and agreed to have their name uh, as a member of the working group uh, attached to this policy, that is probably not too bad. So I'm going to give it a chance. And then, you know, just sort of day to day, uh, we continue to focus on serious crimes. We continue to prosecute serious crimes. We continue not to screw around when we think somebody poses a danger to the community. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie and say there weren't a few uh, speed bumps along the way, both as my office became acclimated to the policies and understanding exactly what I wanted and what I didn't want. Uh, and then also uh, so that uh, law enforcement could see, you know, for example, uh, don't even bother with the marijuana charges anymore. I'm really serious. I'm not prosecuting them. Uh, but I think we've, we, we've, we came to a point where we've, we've reached a good working relationship. And I think that initial uh, stakeholder buy-in and uh, really sharing of information bought us a time that we needed uh, to establish a record of trust.
why wasn't the prison more rehabilitated, right? Uh, why didn't we do something to get this person turned back around? Um, but uh, there's a number of success stories too. And because those aren't headline grabbing, uh, they often go overlooked. I'll give you an example. Uh, we put into place Michigan's first pre-plea diversion program in Washtenaw County, which means that, uh, you know, typically you have to plead guilty to a crime uh, in order to get access to rehabilitative services, substance use treatment, mental health treatment, and the like. And that can be really damaging to people because even pleading guilty to a crime, even though it might be dismissed a year later if you complete your programming, uh, that can put you at risk of losing housing, losing your job. For non-citizens, that very act of pleading guilty triggers the immigration consequences. It doesn't matter what happened down the road. And so, uh, uh, you know, we said, look, let's rewind the clock. Let's make available those exact same services, but before somebody pleads guilty. And if you, uh, you know, succeed, we can dismiss the case without having entered a guilty plea. And if you fall down, if you're, if you're unwilling to abide by the terms uh, or unable to, then we got the option of moving forward with the original case. Well, uh, we launched this in May, uh, and we have a 98% success rate uh, with that program. That means 98% of the people that went through it or are going through it are either on track to complete the program or have already completed it and had their charges dismissed. And there are stories that come out of that. Uh, you know, we had somebody that shoplifted a bottle of wine because he was in recovery, but but relapsed, uh, went back to alcohol use. Uh, and in fact, uh, what, uh, what we were able to do was get him set up with, uh, with, with housing, get him back into his program, uh, and not disrupt his life any more than it had already been disrupted. And he's doing great now. And he was, uh, you know, his case was dismissed last week. That's success story. Uh, and we need to focus, uh, as a, as a movement, I think, uh, just as much on those as, uh, you know, the folks that oppose reform focus on the stories, uh, that, that, that grab headlines, uh, and are, and are real tragedies. As long as we fight for a better system, there is hope. Nikia Porter left us with these words. We talk about allyship, right? And no matter your position, whether it's small or low or high, if you see injustice, stand. Have a backbone, stand up, speak up as if you were in that position. Try to place yourself there the emotions of the families, my family, right? We're standing in solidarity with other families because we know what the impacts are right now. There are other impacts that we are not, we really don't have a clue to, but we're doing the best that we can to try to heal through this process. So if you're in a position where you are to be able to make the change, and to be the change, you know there's changes that need to be made in this justice system. Speak up for those families. Speak up for those individuals as if it were your families that you love, that you support, that you have compassion for. Because that's we need that unity right now. We need that support to make sure that people know that we can't just treat each other this way. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com 
That's justice for George Powell, all one word, dot com.